Welcome to On Tax, a Cravath podcast. I'm Len Tatey, a partner in the tax department of Cravath, Swain & Moore, a premier U.S. law firm based in New York City. On each episode of On Tax, I talk to professionals in the Cravath network about their life and work in the world of tax. We focus on the human side of tax law, highlighting the people, connections, and stories that make the space such a fascinating and dynamic area of practice. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Today, our guest is Will Dixon. Will's an investment banker and managing director at Citigroup. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Len. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Will, like many of our guests, you are a Cravath alumnus. I first met you back in the summer of 2004 when I was a summer associate. You must have been, I don't know, a fifth or sixth year associate. And I remember you giving me an assignment about terminations of partnerships. You wanted me to chronicle for you the things that are deemed to occur when a partnership terminates for tax purposes. And so anyway, that was a big moment for me, Will. (laughs) Well, I'm glad it left an impression. I hope that was a first step in a positive experience that you had for the summer. Obviously, it must have been you came back. Yeah, I fired out of a cannon right there, and it's all been good (laughs) since then. It's been especially great, actually, as a more senior lawyer to work with you as a sort of peer on various deals. But we'll get to that. Will, one of the things we like to talk about with our guests is how they got themselves into the world of law and tax law. So where does that story start for you? Well, I guess I got into law almost because I was trying to improve my position in the career I thought I was already undertaking. I'd been a securities trader at a small securities firm that traded what they called odd lot securities and off the run securities, including things that nowadays people would call distress, basically things that were going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And I was doing pretty well, but I was running into sort of an obstacle in that I really couldn't parlay that into working at the bigger brand name banks because I didn't really think what I was doing at the small firms mattered. I've been involved in a few unofficial creditor committees of distressed bankrupt companies, and I just looked around the room and said, didn't think about this term at the time, but what I was really was doing is how do I find a way to rebrand myself with more credibility? I thought there was a big education gap I had. So going to grad school, there's really two possibilities, go to business school or go to law school. And I just said, why am I going to go to grad school and pay all that money if it's business school where it's really just hard skills I already think I largely possess? where I looked around the room at those creditor committees and I saw the lawyers operating and I just thought they had a range of skills and perspectives that I absolutely did not have. Hmm. And so I said, if I'm going to spend this time, you know, the opportunity cost and this money to go to professional school to get a credential, I'm going to go to law school. So at least I learn a ton more. And so I went to law school and then one thing led to another. I had no grand plan to be a lawyer. I had no grand plan to certainly to be a tax lawyer. In fact, I went to law school thinking I'd never practiced law. I would just use it as a credential to, to get back into a much higher tier of, of the securities world. Because in those days, there was a lot more power inside the sell side firms, the investment banks, the brokerage companies, the, their trading desk. It wasn't like it is now. There's a lot more balance of power between the customers and the brokers. How long out of college were you when you made this decision to go to law school? How long had you been working? Well, I had a couple of different jobs before I did that. So it's probably five or six years, roughly. It's not unusual for folks to work after college, including in unrelated professions before going to law school. I worked for three years and sounds like you worked for more than that. It's a little unusual to work for more than five or six years. When you went back to law school, did you feel that difference? 
I had actually quite a few classmates that were my age or even older. Mm -hmm. But I did feel, though, was a tremendous sense of personal obligation Mm. to do my absolute best in school. And it was my first time in academics where academics was my exclusive focus and my priority. I played sports for a long time where that was probably my priority in life. But when I went to law school, it was all about law school. And I just relished the opportunity. And just the law school environment was very much one that I really appreciated. They appreciated the intensity of it. I appreciated the high stakes of it. And I went to law school thinking that the stakes were really, really high because, as you know, so much in the law is decided, I think probably wrongfully, but it nevertheless, this is the reality. Your first year exams, in many cases, most classes are, you know, are full year classes and there's right. one test. So you really need to be able to deliver during that two or three or four hour period. And you need to be able to have everyday commitment, I think, to get there because there's certainly people who are brilliant, maybe who can do it. But I really think the grind of really taking it seriously every single day. I was one of those guys that briefed my cases through my third year of law school because I just took every opportunity there seriously. But I also felt the stakes were really high because I thought I was giving up a lot to go there and I I didn't want to fail. I really like the way you put that about having a sense of personal obligation, like you owe something to yourself. I remember feeling this too. I had a young family I went to law school with like a 10-month-old and my wife, and then we had more kids right away while I was in law school. And because I had worked, I was able to think about my responsibilities as kind of a job. So I would go up to the law school at 8 or 8.30 in the morning, and I'd kind of stay up there all day. And I'd go home at about 6 o'clock or 6.30, and I'd be able to have dinner with my family. And then it's a separate question about how much work I needed to do afterwards or go up to the law school afterwards. But having worked and having gone through the rhythm of a work day really helped me in that regard. I think it's different for folks who go straight through from college because you're just used to a different kind of routine as a student. And the other thing is you need to really be able to do it without getting a lot of feedback from people. And you know, in law school, you don't get very much feedback. Maybe there's a day when you're called on the Socratic method and you'll get some feedback from the professor. But for the most part, you get virtually no feedback. At least when I went to law school, you get no feedback. So you really have to have confidence in your purpose, in your intensity, and your ability to be reliable to yourself every day. One of my goals is to, to bring a good level of intensity every day. I often joke to people that you need to be able to bring 90% intensity, 100% or 95% of the time, because I, I really think those are game changers. I hear people talk about going 110% and those types of things. And I think that misses the bigger point. I really think every day is an opportunity, but every day is really an obligation. And when you go to law school and you're investing a lot of your time, even you, if you have someone paying for it, but you're really paying for it yourself with your time, because if you're a talented person and your time is immeasurably valuable, and so you owe it to yourself to do your very best while you're doing it. And if you don't want to do it, then pick up sticks and do something else because life is short and these are opportunities to develop yourself and cultivate your skills. So they're precious, but they're, they can be incredibly powerful, but nothing is more powerful than consistency in my mind. A lot of what you're talking about is actually directly applicable to, for example, a law firm associate's career or a law firm associate's kind of daily life and thinking about how to invest in yourself in that way. But it's much broader than that. It's broadly applicable to anything we do. The investment you're making isn't necessarily for 
the thing you're doing right now, a law student, right? Or the thing you're doing right now, a law firm associate, but the investment you're making is in your professional skills and the habits you're forming are designed to benefit all aspects of your life. I think it's a really great lesson, Will. It's one we really haven't focused on very much in the podcast so far. Yeah, well, look, professionalism, right? It's a multi-generational commitment you're making to yourself. So you're trying to do a good job on the assignment you have on your desk because you have a responsibility to that client and to your deal team. But you're trying to develop your skills, which will help you tomorrow. Maybe you're expanding your skills. Maybe you're sharpening a skill that you already have. But that's all very true. And there's a lot of little mini investments that you're making in that process. And it's not much different with any type of cumulative exercise. And being a professional is a cumulative exercise because maybe in the tax law, we're building a knowledge base, but we're also trying to apply it to deals or to transactions or whatever. It really is an ongoing process. And the stuff you did yesterday has a consequence to today. The stuff you're doing today is gonna have a consequence to tomorrow. And just try to keep that in mind that everything you're doing has a current importance, but it has a down the road importance too, if you're truly a professional. You reminded me that when I was an associate, one of the banes of my existence still is, is what there's a long commute I have from where I live. <laughs> and um, every month I'd have to walk up to the machine and buy a monthly ticket. And I was 30 something years old and I was a mid-level or senior associate. And I remember thinking, this is the big investment I'm making right now. I'm not saving a ton of money, right? But buying this monthly ticket, getting on the train, sitting at my desk, doing the work that I'm currently doing today is the big investment I'm making in my future. And it's an important thought process because the the mundane day-to-day tasks can really be frustrating, a drag, maybe not very interesting on any given day, but you have to try and take the long view here. It's how you frame stuff, right, Len? Because you know, part of all the things in our life is how we frame it. One of the popular commentators has talked about, you can think about things that you have to do them, or you can think about things that you get to do them. So you have to do the review of that whatever agreement, or you have to read a particular new set of regulations. But right. I like to think about it that I get to do that. Maybe it might be I'm playing mind games with myself, as people might say, well, you're just good at deluding yourself. But I do think how we frame things does affect our energy level and also our acuity. Because when you're a professional, you're in a blessed position. Well, not everyone has the opportunities that we have. And so I think you should consider that when you have your darker days. That's for sure. And I've been thinking about that (laughs) coming back to work after the pandemic and I'm commuting again. I think like this is a total drag. On the other hand, if you frame it as, hey, good news, the place I work at isn't making me stay at home anymore, right? There's all sorts (laughs) of reasons to be happy about the fact that we don't have to stay at home anymore. And that's just all in the framing. So, Will, that was an awesome sort of digression, but let's go back. So now you're, you're, you're in law school and, yeah. and you're starting law school as maybe older than others and with a slightly different perspective. But what do you remember about thinking about your career after law school? I mean, interviewing at law firms, coming to Corvette out of law school. What do you remember about how you were thinking about that step? My focus was exclusively based on the prestige of the firm. I'd never been part of a prestigious organization before. And I just I just thought there was a tremendous brand power that I wanted to get attached to. And I also didn't really feel particularly confident in my ability to discern the big differences among the firms. That is, I'm sure that when you get to work at a firm, you get to see there are some very distinct cultural features. But I didn't have great confidence that I really would be able to truly gild the lily down to for sure who's the best. I thought I could distinguish between places I would like to be at and things I place I would not particularly like to be at. I didn't think I could find a gradation more specific than that. But what I did know, 
and I did figure out really quickly in law school was law is a remarkably hierarchical profession. And so I felt you wanted to start at the highest possible level. I wanted to go to the absolute best firm I could get an opportunity at. And so those were the firms I focused on. And truthfully, if I hadn't gotten those opportunities, I, I don't think I would have practiced law. But when you take me back to Will as a second year law student, what was I thinking? I was thinking, earn the best possible grades I could so that the biggest law firms would take me seriously in the uh, application process. Well, you obviously succeeded in that regard. I know that you started at Cravath, so presumably you did great in law school and, and you impressed Cravath. What do you recall about the first time you either interviewed with or sat down with and worked with the Cravath folks? What were your expectations about what they would be like, given the sort of prestige and hierarchical sense that you had about the law firm in the world? And how did your day-to-day experiences match with those expectations? Well. I guess my impression was I thought it would be completely no-nonsense and super competent. And I will say, right from the jump in the interview process, it seemed that way. Because I remember there were associates in like this meeting room that were almost there as like filters. Mm-hmm. And then I remember thinking, wow, this is strange. This is a first-round interview, and I'm interviewing with partners, where that was not typically the case at the other elite firms. You tended to go through uh, several associates before you got to the partners. And I said to myself, the partners are spending their time screening us. They must take this whole thing really seriously. And it reinforced my impression of sort of intensity of the place and that it made sense then when they said we run more lean and we actually know our people. It, it just sort of resonated as true. When I joined the firm, my initial reaction was, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I feel completely unqualified. I'm the exact mistake that the employment office mm-hmm. made. And I said, holy cow. And then I just tried to do my best to survive initially. And then, you know, eventually things seemed a little bit more normal. But I remember feeling the first period of time as the actual associate, I felt pretty overwhelmed. And so I, I definitely felt, wow, I have a lot to live up to. Yeah, I mean, I remember having similar experiences. And it's interesting that you that you mentioned your expectation being that Cravath would be super competent or proficient. Because having worked here now for a long time, I think I've sort of realized there isn't really a cravath type except for competence, except for effectiveness. There's all sorts of different ways to be an effective lawyer, and there's all sorts of different personalities in the world, in law schools, et cetera. And I think rather than trying to make our associates like us, the partners, I'm trying to make our associates like the most effective lawyer they can be given their personalities, their skills, their strengths. And not everybody is going to do task X the same way I would. And what Cravath has taught me is that there's a lot of different ways to to get the task done and a lot of different ways to get the deal where it needs to be. And our goal is to really teach young lawyers how to produce those kinds of results themselves rather than just mimicking what they're seeing. We say a couple of things there that resonate with me or help me remember key aspects of my experience at Cravath that I greatly enjoyed and I think have served me pretty well. What I come back to is the beauty of Cravath or the truly specialness of Cravath that I remember was I've never been associated with a group of people where more consistently people took personal responsibility for what was on their desk. Hmm. 
And I cannot tell you how many times I saw people, even when they announced, you know, it was time for them to leave Cravath, they're going to move on to something else that they were excited about or proud of in their life. They continue to treat that credit agreement, that merger agreement, whatever it happened to be, incredibly seriously. Because once it was on your desk, people took a tremendous sense of personal responsibility. And I rarely, rarely encountered a person at Cravath that ever didn't do that. But for whatever reason, I felt that was the magic of Cravath. And I really appreciated that because I just felt that resonated with me. And when you talk about there's more than one way to skin a cat, that also resonates because you get assigned to a partner for the year. But it's actually really great because you're sort of stuck with each other for the year. But what you also learn once you do your second or third rotation is there's a lot of people doing an amazing job, in my case, in the tax law, who are absolutely not doing it the same way. And it really, really broadens your horizons. And it also makes you a lot more open-minded about how you're going to try to succeed when it's your job. And there's not one way, but you have to do it at a high level, whichever way you choose. But it, it has to be a high result, but doesn't the exact steps might differ, the exact mannerisms might differ. The purpose of the crevasse system is to develop young lawyers out of law school and to turn them into highly effective, competent, professional lawyers, but also professionals of all kinds who can go out and do various things. And that really brings us, I guess, to your next step out of Cravath, which was to go to City, as I recall. But tell me about mm -hmm. how you thought about leaving the firm and how you thought about interviewing for jobs out of Cravath. What were you looking for and how did you find it when you did that? Yeah, this is sort of another embarrassing story. I really wasn't looking to leave. I'd gotten some calls from some of the big investment banks, and I pretty much had said I wasn't interested. I really liked practicing law. They would always act like investment bankers love to do extreme disbelief. How could you possibly prefer being a lawyer to the prospect <laughs> of becoming an investment banker? But then Citigroup gave me a call. Initially, I was actually recommending some other people. And then a friend of mine that worked in a different part of the organization said, just have lunch with one of the people uh, in the investment bank. Just listen. And I was just very enthused with the idea of having an environment where I could put together, if you will, the hard skills I had developed at Cravath. And I really felt uh, privileged to have developed them with more of a day-to-day -day business part of the job, whether it was marketing, whether it was idea development, et cetera. And so when I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to actually join Citigroup, I really just closed my eyes and held my breath because I, I felt I was leaving something really extraordinary at Cravath. But I said, you know what, I got to try this. And if it turns out that I, I don't like it or if I completely bomb at it, I'll just go to a law firm. But then I went to the investment banking side and I very much enjoyed it and I felt well prepared in many respects, uh, both from my experience at Cravath and other just life experiences that I had. And uh, But that was the way. I wish I could tell you that I had a vision for doing law for a couple of years. I was going to transition to banking. That was sort of pretty common at the time when I was there. But when I went, I went very much with my hard skills being a critical part of why I think I was hired, as well as some of the other softer qualities that I possess. So like, I, I give a lot of credit to Cravath preparing me for having the opportunity that I received at, at Citigroup and some of the other, other banks I mentioned. I wanted to ask you about your perspective of the tax associates who were hired out of top law firms in this era. Mm -hmm. We've had several of them on the podcast now, and you mm -hmm. were part of that generation here several years ahead of me, where the banks were really looking to build out 
a tax specialty within their M&A advisory investment banking groups. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could give me your perspective on what was going on and whether over the longer term that strategy has paid off for the banks. Well, I think there were a couple of banks that were at the forefront of doing this long before I joined Citigroup. And I think their basic idea was they wanted to have some ability to identify structures that would be value-enhancing to clients. I think they felt they need to be conversant in that. I think it's helped the banks only because you're able to serve your clients better if you can listen to more of their concerns in a rational way. And tax professionals had just a hard skill expertise that was lacking in the banks or that wasn't as well developed in the banks or that or they could just use some more resources. So you're trying to design derivatives, you're trying to design other alternative products and tax would be a central feature of that it was only logical that they would go to the well to find some of those people as well. And I had considered some jobs like that earlier in my career, but it never really appealed to me as much as what I uh, do now, never seriously considered it. But that was another trend that was going on at that time. And they were hiring some pretty junior people for both those positions, actually, at the time. I was sort of unusual. I left sort of later in my career than most people did. And there are pros and cons to that. But I left with more tax experience and maybe a little bit more formed. And other people left with less direct tax experience, but more malleable. And a lot of those guys have gone on not just in tax paths, but non-tax paths in banks too, and have done just great things, including a, a bunch of Karath alumni. So one of the things I realized about your career is that you're still doing a lot of tax, right? We were on our recent call, <laughs> actually on the other side of a deal that our clients are talking about structures on. And last year, we were working on a deal on the same side, trying to get a structure off the ground. And so it seems to me that you're still doing a lot of tax, but you're probably doing it at a slightly different level than you were in a place like Cravath. I mean, we have to go through all the regs and make sure that every last sort of exception and subparagraph is covered off. You probably are aware that there are such subparagraphs, but don't have to swim in them all the time. How has your persona as a professional sort of changed from like a tax person to more of a commercial advisor type on an M&A team? that happens to know a lot about tax, if that's a fair characterization. Yeah, it varies. I think part of this is just marketing. I mean, I take the, the view of trying to know as much about the tax laws as possible. I hope that I know a decent amount um, about a wide range of things. What's different is understanding your role in the transaction. So in truth, when you're an investment banker, you're critically important to the tax ideas relatively early in the transaction, because what you're really doing is sort of giving a green light, yellow light, red light in terms of feasibility. Is it worth your client's time to think about pursuing this? And you're in an unusually well-equipped position to have credibility there because in truth, the most sophisticated clients know we only get paid for transactions that are actually done. Mm -hmm. So me touting something that's extreme might be wildly interesting intellectually. We could have a great conference about it, a great panel about it. But it doesn't get anybody anywhere. I don't get paid by the hour, so I don't have any incentive to do it. Ultimately, though, I realize that no one's taking their final tax advice from an investment bank. They're going to turn to their law firm or their accounting firm and say, okay, finally, is this actually what we can expect the intended tax treatment to actually prevail? You helping to understand the importance of all that. It's not that you don't have technical expertise, or at least that's not the position I take. I think you need to properly understand your role. 
in the process. So that's how I would actually distinguish the responsibility. I think if you think you're involved in transactions that have an important tax element to that, and that doesn't have to mean some type of gimmick, what it really normally means is getting the benefit of what you expect to result from a transaction. I think even if you're not practicing as the lawyer, as the official tax advisor, you try to know as much as possible about it. And that's why I still read the regulatory packages that come out, notice packages that come out more than once and very active in the different conference realms and, and those types of things. Because I think it's critically important to have subject matter expertise, even if you're not the person giving tax advice, to understand the relevance of it in the transactional ecosystem. But one of the other responsibilities is, as where I sit, maybe as compared to where you sit, or someone similarly situated, is it's my responsibility to prioritize what the decision maker or what my non-task colleagues really need to know. Mm. And it takes some amount of judgment because one of the things that worries us as a tax associate, right, is there's always another trap door somewhere, right? But you really can't go through every trap door with the client about everything. You really have to force rank and prioritize. And that's why I'd say go back to my time as a securities trader that really benefits me is the ability to make hard decisions or consequential decisions with incomplete information or where you have to force rank or weight adjust things is really critical. You have to be able to do that just psychologically. And if you're going to do, I think, my job responsibly for your clients, but also for my colleagues, my non-tax colleagues who are incredibly important to the whole process, you have to translate for them the relevance of the tax aspects of the financial decision. But then that also puts a burden on me. I need to know enough about financing, enough about accounting, enough about other important features of the transaction that I can try to say, okay, how does what I'm talking about here in tax interact with these decisions about financing? How does this the tax elements of this transaction interact with the other deals I know this particular client's considering. If we do this transaction, are they going to not be able to do this other transaction for a certain amount of time, or will they be hampered, or will they be otherwise compromised? They need to know about that now. That's the kind of stuff you have to think about when you're working in the as a deal advisor from a financial advisor perspective as compared to perhaps being the hardcore end of the line take it right to the goal line tax advisor who's giving a legal opinion about a discrete transaction. Mm-hmm. You're being asked about a discrete set of facts with a intended tax treatment, and you're trying to say, are they going to get that or not? As you were talking there, it reminded me that when we were on the phone this weekend, it was a pretty big call, and my client's financial advisor was on the phone with me, and you were on the phone for your client with another tax lawyer in the city. And it struck me that in your role now, you have had the opportunity to work with really fantastic tax advisors, both in New York City and kind of worldwide. And I want to ask you a question that we've asked some of our guests, and that is, what do you think the best or most effective tax lawyers do especially well? What are some of the traits or skills or characteristics of them that you think is common across the top of the industry? Well, I think it's a hard question to answer because in the transactional sense, I think it's one thing. And I think when you have a super discreet issue, I think it's, there's another answer. Mm-hmm. When it's a super, super discreet question that you have narrowed down exactly what the question is, the question is just, are you getting to the bowels of the answer with the guy that's been in the stacks on the topic enough to give you the answer that nobody else can? So intelligence, analytical power, these sorts of things. I actually think it's just knowledge. I think the intelligence is probably the most overrated quality in a lawyer. I think, did you actually put in the time to actually know a lot of law? And a lot of lawyers amazingly don't know a hell of a lot of law, which is sort of alarming to me because I'm hoping to find people that know a lot more law than I do. But in the transactional sense, 
I think what really, in my experience, separates the lawyers you most appreciate having on your side. I'll put it that way because I don't want to say who's better and who's worse, but the people that you most appreciate working with, I think, are the people that are the most disinclined to prejudge a situation. And it gets harder and harder the more deals you do to not think you already know all the answers. You find it yourself as a financial advisor. You have to really start from scratch transactions to listen to the people that have been talking to the client for longer or have been considering other transactions or strategies for the client for longer and try to take all that in before you start reaching too many grand conclusions. So that, to me, that's sort of the first thing. The second thing I would just say that the very best lawyers do, I think is what the best bankers do. The best lawyers who appreciate what the other people working on the transaction bring. And I don't think that's uniform among even lawyers who are really proficient in their very so-called area of expertise. And the thing is, to make these larger deals work, it takes a lot of people to sing in harmony. And I think seeing seen a lot of good tax lawyers over the years who are able to help their client avoid problems because they were listening when other people who weren't tactical talking, they said, wow, I make a connection because they didn't prejudge the situation and they respected the fact that other people are playing an important role in the transaction too. Mm, I follow. So in the few minutes we have left, Will, we like to talk to our guests about what they like to do when they're not working on tax stuff. <laughs> what do you like to do outside of work? What are your hobbies or your other interests? Well, my kids are my number one interest and my family is overall my number one interest. I exercise every day, which I very much enjoy doing. And I like to read. I like to read both about tax. I like to read about things that are non-tax related all the time. And I really do believe you're broadening your horizons helps you in your profession, just helps you in your life immensely. And just trying to keep challenging yourself, I just enjoy that. Do you like to read nonfiction mostly or fiction? Where do you like to go when you escape into a book? I almost exclusively read nonfiction. And I am embarrassed to say that my resume of fiction reading is way too light, mm. probably. Me too. And I probably would be a little more creative if I did read more fiction. But I would say about 90% of what I read that's non-tax is nonfiction. I have the same feeling. I mean, I'm very underread in fiction, especially good fiction, like real literature, both modern and older. But whenever I'm reading good fiction, I sort of think to myself, I should do this more. I feel like <laughs> I'm following the themes. I'm doing some deep thinking about my life, the current mm -hmm. world, et cetera, all the things that good art is supposed to do. And yet I don't do it. I read mostly nonfiction. too. <laughs> There's so much good nonfiction out there now. that, I, And I feel like I've backed into a bunch of it. And so I will say I don't regret reading it, but I, just, I do sometimes wonder if I allowing a blind spot to build up on the fiction side. But there's a lot of good nonfiction out there. And I benefit from it immensely. And I just I also just enjoy it. Anything you're reading recently or have read recently that you think is notable? I read a book called Think Again by Adam Grant this past summer mm -hmm. that I thought that was important because it helped really describe to me in a scientific way why it's hard for us to change our mind just scientifically without adding a lot of the value judgments that you've set in your ways or this and that. And so, and I feel part of just life is about our capacity to truly take in new information. Most people I know would describe themselves as open-minded, as would I. But this book really sort of challenged if you will, the scientific obstacles or the evolutionary obstacles we have to truly be a person that's open to taking any new information in as pure a way as possible. I really benefited from that one message in the book in particular. It dovetails with the point you were just making about tax lawyers not prejudging issues when they see them, or it's not just going to be like the same issue you dealt with in a deal last year. It might have different facts or might have a different answer depending on that. So one has to keep an open mind in that way too. 
Our guest today has been Will Dixon, a managing director at Citigroup. Will, it's been really great to catch up with you on this uh, episode. Thanks so much for doing it and look forward to working on some deals with you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lynn. Have a great afternoon. That's all for this episode of On Tax, a Cravath podcast. You can find us online at cravath.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen. We'd also love to hear from you directly. You can tell us what you'd like to hear on the show by emailing podcast at cravath.com. I'm your host, Len Tatey. Thanks for listening. 